Welcome to the World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Ulrike Franke, I'm a policy fellow at ECFR and I have taken over today's episode because rather than moderating, we want ECFR's director Mark Leonard to talk to us and share some of his thoughts. Today we will be discussing Brexit again, a topic that does not seem to go away. And to make sense of this, we not only have Mark Leonard here today, but are particularly honored to welcome ECFR council member Douglas Alexander to this week's episode. Douglas Alexander is a senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School, and he, of course, also was an MP in the House of Commons until 2015 and had several secretary positions. He was also Shadow's foreign secretary between 2011 and 2015. And I know that he is now working on and thinking about Britain's future and we are thus very happy to have him here today. We also have with us today Nick Whitney, a senior policy fellow at ECFR and former and first director of the European Defense Agency. So we're going to talk about European security and defense after Brexit as well. We're actually recording this in Berlin, where ECFR has organized a series of fantastic meetings and roundtables to talk about European security post-Brexit and the future of EU-UK security cooperation. And we have had participants from all over Europe that have very different views on many things, but there was actually one question that united all of them, and that is, what does Britain actually want? Is there a vision of the future of the security relationship between the United Kingdom and the EU after Brexit. And I would like to start with this. Um, Nick or Douglas Alexander, does either of you have an idea of what the actual vision is of Britain when it comes to security and defence? Well, the two papers that the British government published uh, in the early autumn indicated that the British vision was of a deep and special partnership with the 27 after Brexit in relation to security and defence policy. I think the question is not the desirability but the achievability of that vision, uh, given both the reality of a member of the European Union choosing to leave and all of the consequences that will follow. So my fear is that what seems sensible on one side of the channel sounds like a cherry picker's charter on the other. Hmm. Nick? Well, I agree with that. I think. The British side have consistently failed to understand throughout this negotiation so far that um, this is not something that is amenable to a political fix. You're dealing with what is essentially a community of law on the other side. The European uh, Union is a very strange beast which constrains its uh, currently 28 members only by wrapping them up in a series of uh, the famous European Aki, all the lists and rules and regulations. And it's incredibly difficult to, for, for Europe, even with the best will in the world, which may not necessarily apply to Britain, but uh, in certain security aspects probably does. It's incredibly difficult to step outside the rules and regulations. And the rules and regulations have clear precedents for the sort of relationships that third countries, non-members, can enjoy with the Union. And they've got deals with uh, Turkey for military cooperation or whatever it may be, and deals with Norway. And the idea that the Brits can just come in and say, well, hang on, you know, we're much more important than either of those guys, mm. um, and cut us uh, some brand new deal, is one which would be 
very difficult for the EU as an institution to digest and deal with, even if everyone was a thousand percent enthusiastic to do it. Hmm. But your reading really is that from the British side, the ideal situation would be a relationship as close as possible when it comes to security and defense. I mean, you refer to these papers um, that you know very much read like love letters to the EU, and I thought that that was absolutely fascinating, and I didn't really expect that. But of course, there's also the possibility that military might in particular could be seen by the UK as a kind of bargaining chip in these negotiations. Because, of course, you know, the, the military capabilities of the UK is one of those things that Europe, the EU, is, is quite interested in. Is there any, any sign of that in your view? Well, my sense is the British government has moved away from seeing security, overtly at least, as a bargaining chip in the negotiations, not least because it was received like a bucket of cold sick by our friends and partners in Europe when it was mooted in those terms at an earlier stage in the discussions. But I think, building on Nick's point, there is, a, there is still a peculiar British conceit informing much of the government's thinking, which is that it is entirely up to Britain to determine what kind of Brexit we want to enjoy with the European Union. Shall we go for a hard Brexit? Shall we go for a soft Brexit? Do we want to be Canada plus or Norway minus? And I think... Um, if one looks at phase one of the Brexit negotiations, um, a different logic applies. There is not only a community of law, but in the manner in which accession negotiations have taken place over many years, what we've actually seen is an accommodation by the United Kingdom to a prescribed set of rules set down by our colleagues in the European Union. And in that sense, I think the challenging question in relation to security and foreign policy is what is the view that will be taken by our European colleagues as to what Britain brings to the table? Because one of the many ironies of the position that Britain finds itself in today is that a campaign that was run under the rubric of take-back control has actually ended up with a series of negotiations in which Britain is manifestly not in control. Mm. And in that sense, I think it will ultimately rest with judgments made not just in Berlin but in Paris and elsewhere as to what the character of the defence and security cooperation will be going forward, far more than the terms of the papers published by the British government in the early autumn. But it is a weird thing, because it's the one area where things are a little bit more balanced, because I think if you look at all of the deals which need to be done under both the first uh, basket of issues under the Article 50 Treaty, which has got a, a sort of divorce deal... Uh, an agreement on the transition and some sort of political statement about what the future looks like that is very much conforming to the accession model where you pretend to negotiate but it's basically you're negotiating about how quickly <laughs> you <laughs> implement what the EU is trying to do because the balance of power is so skewed uh, towards the 27 versus the UK and they have a cliff edge and time, a ticking time bomb on their side so everything's kind of in their interest um, when it comes to the after the transition when we're kind of thinking about the longer term relationship I imagine that the trade negotiations will be quite similar to that I mean in that the UK can choose whether it wants to, to, to go for a Norway model in which case it'll be just like Norway or a Canada model in which case it'll be just like Canada or a Ukraine model, and then it'll be just like Ukraine. But, <laughs> but on, but if not just going to be a trade deal, there will also be these deals on security policy and on and on foreign and defence policy. 
And there it's a much more balanced equation because about a third of, of uh, the EU member states who are in NATO's defence spending comes from the UK. Um, Britain won't have the ability to block things if it's not in the EU, which was the one thing people didn't like about Britain. <laughs> but it will have all the good things about Britain uh, uh, and people will want to try and find ways of accommodating it. I don't think they'll force Britain to do it. So I do think there is a question about whether Britain wants to have a kind of a more institutionalised relationship on these issues. And they may not get it, but I think there'll be some member states that want to accommodate it if it wants to do that, or whether it wants to have a relationship that's much more tactical, where you take part in operations, maybe you might even take part in some defence projects, you, you get access to some databases, but you're not really trying to be part of the decision-making and the shaping of, of European foreign policy. And I think it's a lot easier to see how you do that than, a, than to rebuild a situation where Britain's actually part of shaping how you deal with a big crisis, you know, like the annexation of, of, of Crimea or a future Iran nuclear process. But if the UK wanted to have that sort of relationship, so long as it didn't want to veto, I think it might not succeed, but people might be willing to listen to it. What's unclear to me, as somebody who spent a lot of time talking to British uh, politicians and civil servants is whether there's uh, even any chance of people asking for it. I think it looks like a low chance at the moment that the government would, would want to do that. But I think there could be quite a big loss if you think about a lot of the, the channels of British influence in the last few years. They have gone through the... It's impossible to think about a future Iran uh, nuclear negotiations having Britain as part of the system if it happened now, if we don't build something like that. Because you can see how we could how we could kind of tack ourselves on to, to sanctions regimes because a lot of that stuff gets done through the G7 or, or, or other areas. But to have a kind of long, sustained thing where you think something through and you manage it like we did with, with France and Germany on Iran, I think it's much more difficult outside the EU. And our policy, you know, how do we have a policy towards the Balkans if we're not part of the EU? How do we have a policy towards Russia if we're not in the EU? I mean, some of these kind of bigger areas, quite difficult to see what a British policy is. Mm -hmm. Well, I heard it indicating the former Taoiseach speak recently, and he said in any negotiation, you tend to have a higher chance of getting what you want if you know what you want. Yeah. And it's hard to <laughs> overstate the degree of incoherence, uh, you know, 17, 18 months on from the referendum vote. Um, that still afflicts the British government's negotiating position. You take something as fundamental as the future trading relationship, and to date, the Cabinet has been unable to agree or reach a consensus in terms of what would be the appropriate trading relationship. So I think, first of all, we shouldn't presume a degree of coherence that manifestly has not been there to date. But I think we can exclude from the likely scenarios a view within the present cabinet emerging that there needs to be deep institutional integration within the pre-existing structures of the European Union in defence and foreign policy. I think there's really no constituency within the Conservative Party arguing for that. I do think, however, though, there is an appetite, certainly among some Conservative ministers, for a more intergovernmental approach, which historically has been an area that Britain has felt more comfortable in, and I think that is actually the space in which... Um, the aspirations of the British government will be tested against the reality of the European team. But, but it but, sounds... Sorry, Nick, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, 
I understand why, why Douglas says that, but I think, surprisingly, there may be a, a, a view within the government that, that the, the special weight and role of Britain should be acknowledged by a formal institutional relationship. I mean, that is what the September papers said. And apparently, based on a conversation, a discussion which took place within the National Security Council at some stage in the autumn, the government has undergone a bit of a, a deathbed conversion to the idea that mm. it is actually in Europe, in Britain's security interests that Europe should do better at defence and that European defence integration, which has been the bogeyman that they've obstructed for so many years, is actually something that they should smile on, at least, even if we've now arrived at the point where we can't be formally part of it. So I wouldn't exclude this, that we will ask for for a seat at the table of the of the Brussels ambassadors when they get together to discuss the latest Iran crisis or the or the latest uh, idea for trying to pursue European defence integration. I just don't think we'll get it, and if we don't ask, it'll be because we probably you know, the, the penny has dropped that that the rules preclude it. That there's too much resentment anyway around Europe about how we've obstructed CSDP in the past, that there's growing scepticism, I'm focusing on the defence dossier here, growing scepticism about just what Britain is still going to be capable of bringing to the party, mm. given the mess that the defence budget is in and given the fact that aircraft carriers, especially ones without aeroplanes, look sort of somehow less useful in today's world than some other aspects of defence capability. And given, frankly, also a degree of complacency on the European side that um, where there's been a lot of institutional rebooting going on since the Brexit vote, um, most of it with acronyms that we needn't um, uh, trouble with now, but there is a sense, for yeah, example... We did have a great discussion about PESCO. Though. PESCO is one. <laughs> I'll, PESCO I'll get to PESCO one. in a second. <laughs> PESCO is one. But, I mean, here we are in Berlin, and there's a, there's a strong sense in Berlin that they've sorted European defence because mm -hmm. they've... Uh, They've got a lot of new institutions and acronyms going, and they've got PESCO going. So, frankly, you know, who needs the Brits? Um, I think the foreign policy thing is, is, is rather different. I think one of the areas... I mean, I, the, the beauty about most of the foreign policy areas is that they are not just intergovernmental, but they have to be decided by unanimity. Yeah. So British sovereignty will be intact, whatever happens. Um, and I think also, if we leave the EU, it's going to be pretty clear that the UK is not going to have a veto on anything. So there's no sort of massive downside for the autonomy of EU decision-making of having Britain at the table in some kind of observer status. If Britain asks for it, and if relations haven't broken down in fundamental ways, and if there isn't a big divergence of interest, which there could be, actually, you know, if the economic relationships are not well handled... You could imagine a situation where British governments off around the world trying to sign trade deals with everybody and is undercutting the EU foreign policy positions left, right and centre in order to curry favour with third parties. We saw a, a taste of that after Donald Trump decided to leave the Paris climate deal when Boris Johnson refused to take part in, um, in, the, discussion, in the EU statement condemning uh, that decision, even though it had been British policy to support the Paris climate deal. Um, since then, Britain's been a little bit more aligned with EU foreign policy on Iran and on Jerusalem. But that temptation might be there if Britain's trying to sign trade deals with China, with um, uh, Australia, with all sorts of other countries to, to go it alone. And that could make it quite difficult. But one of the. If you take the example yeah. of the Jerusalem decision recently, do you honestly believe? 
Boris Johnson's thinking, or Theresa May's thinking, was informed by ensuring European unanimity. I, I wish in some ways that that was a serious consideration, but I frankly doubt it is. And similarly, I think on... So what do you think was informing it? I, I think I, I, I sense that the, the statement that the President issued was without logic in the region, was inimical to Britain's long-standing commitment to a two-state solution. I think it, it, it was determined on its own terms rather than with regard to but on the European most, consensus. I know, but on most issues, if Britain just looks at things on their own terms, it's going to end up exactly where France and Germany are. Um, you know, unless it's trying to get a separate trade deal with another country or there's some extra logic... But, you know, yeah. given our geographical location, the way that we look first, at the world, our size... The first group that Britain's trying to get a trade deal with is Europe. And I think that maybe informs the two papers that we saw in the autumn. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a consensus on the why. I personally doubt there's a consensus on the what, yeah. given the um, opinions that have emerged both within the Cabinet and within the Parliamentary Conservative Party. And in that sense, I do think that there are... There are, there's a heavy responsibility in our European partners to come to their own view as to what logic there is to cooperation. But there will also be a responsibility on uh, government ministers in the United Kingdom to level with their supporters, both in Parliament and beyond, as to the overwhelming logic for continuing security and defence cooperation. They haven't had a great track record of levelling with their supporters on the realities of Brexit, at least to date. So given what you just said now, what do you think the biggest challenges are going to be? Uh, what are the biggest challenge moving forward? Is it going to be trade? Is it going to be, well, security? Is it more going to be the kind of bad blood that is created um, throughout these negotiations as we can see now? I'd start with the challenge of avoiding civil war on part of the UK's national territory. I mean, I think the... So you think the Ireland border I is think, the main I think issue? the Ireland border is an appalling mess, and of course it's been just completely fudged at the moment. Um, and we defeated terrorism in, in Northern Ireland, first of all by forming a, a real close, trusting, cooperative partnership with Dublin which was seen to be um, you know, set fair to try to trash, and, of course, then by situating the conflict within the, within the secure framework of European um, consolidation and, and lots and lots of European money. And all that we're just carelessly tossing down the, down the, down the drain and ending up with this compromise word of full regulatory alignment for the whole of the UK, on all matters that affect not just North-South cooperation, but the Irish economy as well. So, I mean, it's very hard to see what um, could be excluded from, from full regulatory alignment, and yet we don't want to stay in the single market. So we, we have a, a fundamental incoherence in the Phase 1 agreement, which um, kicks the can down the road, but um, will we'll be a... You know, huge problem in the next stage of the negotiations. Well, let's talk about the next stage of the, the negotiations because it is this week that we're supposedly um, closing phase one of the negotiations and moving into phase two. And I know that Mark has had a um, series of interesting meetings in Brussels and elsewhere about you know how, how phase two is going to look like. So can you can you tell us a bit more about? what the future is going to hold for this? Are we just kicking the can down the road and all these problems that supposedly we've more or less solved now are going to come back to us? Well, I, I laid out some of the different building blocks um, earlier on, but I think the first chunk is 
what gets negotiated under Article 50, which is basically the terms of the divorce, the money, citizens' rights, Northern mm -hmm. Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, and then a transition deal, a standstill transition for two years or some period like that. And then after that, there'll be a sort of broad brush political declaration about what kind of relationship will be negotiated. That has to basically be wrapped up by the autumn of next year in order that it can be ratified in time for March 2019 when the EU leaves. Um, but at the beginning of next year, they can start serious work on, 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 a, on a trade deal, which will be the one of, apparently, according to people in Brussels, one of four pillars of what the longer term relationship is going to be like. And with a trade deal, lots of discussions about the different models, which we talked about before. Mm -hmm there'll be some sort of deal about how to carry on working together on uh, you know, labs and universities to replace Horizon 2020. There'll be something on security um, and something on, uh, on internal security um, and something on, on security and defence. Those will be the kind of different bits which will probably not be a single treaty but several treaties because they're going to need to be ratified in different ways. But maybe the biggest challenge actually is going to be even if you can get deals on all of these things done and these are, there are a lot of ifs and there's a lot of work to be done uh, um, over the next few years to make that happen, um, getting it getting some sort of trade deal ratified um, it could be incredibly difficult. One of the things that Michel Barnier is actually very, very articulate about, if you talk to him, is this kind of more fundamental ch choice for the UK about whether it's just leaving the EU or whether it's leaving the regulatory model which Britain has built together with the rest of the European Union over the last few decades. Can it really? Would it be in its interest to do so? Well... There are a lot of people in the Conservative Party who think that taking back control is an opportunity to, to set uh, regulations within the UK. They believe in a smaller state. They think that Britain could become more competitive if it's not bound up in the red tape which European countries have decided to wrap themselves in. And um, what Barnier said is if there's even a whiff of a suggestion that that's what the UK is trying to do, then good luck getting a trade deal mm -hmm. ratified by the Wallonian Parliament, the Flemish Parliament, <laughs> the Brussels Parliament, uh, let alone the French Parliament and the Dutch Parliament. And he says that um, we saw what happened with the Canadian deal. Mm. Um, it could be a lot worse if people think that this is about social dumping and fiscal dumping for the UK. And so you could go through this kind of whole process over years and years and get a deal between all the different governments and then see it fall apart at the last minute because people run a campaign on it and given you know the sort of campaigns that were run against TTIP and chlorinated chickens it could be you know in today's climate it's not that difficult to imagine people running convincing campaigns against um, against uh, a Tory-led government uh, trying to undercut um, people in other countries particularly given that that's exactly what the Labour Party will be accusing them of doing. Uh, domestically, so there'll be a lot of British voices that you could uh, that you could use if you want to put that case together in a in a referendum campaign, and um, if there are referenda in in other EU member states. Hmm, fun times ahead. <laughs> so, is there any chance that we're going to stick to the timeline that has <laughs> suggested, or um... the um, case that Mark sets out is is absolutely where Brussels is. Um, it seems to me that we are inevitably looking at a separation treaty in March of 2019 rather than a separation treaty and a comprehensive 
uh, free trade agreement. Um, I have to say, my own experience suggests that the prospect of being able to deliver anything akin to a comprehensive economic trade agreement and Canada plus plus plus, as David Davis described it, within the two years that are anticipated after March of 2019, seems to me extraordinarily ambitious. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, first of all, of course, people will say, well, we are uh, not seeing the kind of alignment, but we're seeing a, a, a common starting point. But nonetheless, one has to recollect that 79% of the British economy are services. And in that sense, if you look at the references to services in CETA, it's extremely limited. You then get the point that Mark makes, which is even if you were able to achieve negotiations, it was nine years ago that CETA was initiated. I was actually chairing the British Government Trade Committee at the time of the initiation of the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement with Canada. So in that sense, there's a whole number of uh, complexities and timescales that simply don't accord. I think I would make a couple of observations. Firstly, we are learning that Brexit is a process rather than an event. And even if we see the conclusion of the Article 50 process at the end of March 2019, there will be many more chapters to this particular story. And secondly, amidst all of the complexities of Phase 1 of the negotiations, and as we anticipate them, Phase 2, there are some fairly basic equations. What is most politically attractive, Theresa May, is often most economically damaging. There is a trade-off between Mm. prosperity and sovereignty, And similarly, as we look to phase two of the negotiations, there is a fairly basic trade-off between access and alignment. And my concern as we look to phase two is so little domestic work has been done by the British government to ready its own supporters and indeed Brexit supporters for what would necessarily be the extremely difficult compromises and choices that delivering the kind of timescale that Mark suggests would actually involve. Can I ask you a question as a, what, the only one around this table who's, who's run election campaigns in Britain? Um, how do you see the electoral politics emerging? Because um, obviously there will be a general election at some point during this long process that you, you're talking about. Um, how do you see the different parties lining up? If you were Theresa May, or in fact not Theresa May, because she's unlikely to be fighting the, the next election. But if you were a Tory strategist, then what's the optimal political timetable for, for thinking about this? When would you want to do the election? How? What would you have done before it? What would you want to fight it over? And then. What, what does that mean for the other parties as well that are thinking about well, it? The timescale for a general election with five-year parliaments now in the UK has already impi- impacted on the negotiations in the sense that it informed, although it seems like a different political age, the decision to trigger Article 50 in the first place and has driven many of the Brexiteers within the government uh, to saying we have to be seen to have delivered Brexit by the time of the next election and we will be deeply vulnerable to challenge on our right from UKIP and others if we're seen not to have concluded the Brexit negotiations in a timeliest fashion. Looking more broadly, I think it's unlikely, let's just wait and see, but I think it's very unlikely that Theresa May will lead the Conservative Party into the next election and Conservatives um, are maintaining her in office at the moment for the same reason that she assumed office after the referendum, which is She's the Goldilocks candidate, not too much in favour of Brexit and not too much in favour of Remain as far as a party that is deeply divided. So one has to presume a different leader in circumstances where the Article 50 negotiations will have been concluded. But if one looks at Brexit as a process rather than an event, 
the chilling effect that it has, not least on investment within the UK and the trend rate of growth uh, in the British economy, as we saw confirmed only a couple of weeks back in the revised OBR figures for British trend growth over the years ahead, suggests to me that the Conservatives will want to run this Parliament as long as they can. And even if we see change within the Conservative leadership, it is more likely that that new Conservative leader will want time to get their feet under the desk and essentially do to Theresa May what Theresa May did to David Cameron, which is to come in and say, I'll clean up the mess that I've inherited. And in that sense, I think the working assumption at this stage needs to be that despite the inherent vulnerabilities and incoherence of this government, we should anticipate, by elections notwithstanding, the probability that the general election won't be until the end of the five-year term. But the British electorate didn't didn't vote for a process. They voted to get out of the EU. I well, mean, they voted for a what, dream that doesn't exist. I mean, I'm just asking myself, at what stage, if, if this thing turns into a, a weeping wound, poisoning the whole of British politics year after year, I mean, at what stage do the no-dealers come back in and say, enough, you know, it couldn't, it couldn't be worse. Just well, somebody who's a strong supporter of remains, I think one of the truths that Remain supporters need to acknowledge is... Um, it is unlikely that there is going to be a single moment where there is a Damascene conversion of the British public. And it is much more likely that the economically damaging consequences of Brexit will be felt over a sustained period of time and a lower trend rate of growth. But in that sense, I struggle to construct at the moment a moment at which there will be a Pauline conversion, the scales will fall from Brexit voters' eyes. Indeed, I think if you look for example, at the example of Greece and the difficult negotiations that the Greek government conducted with the Commission and others, if you have a government that is manifestly struggling to explain the external negotiations it's engaged in, that does not guarantee that the government falls as a consequence. What you saw with Suiza in Greece was a government that identified itself with the public, struggling and facing economic hardship in opposition to international forces. So I think you can construct a scenario in two or three years' time where people like David Davis or Boris Johnson, far from coming out with their hands up saying, oh my goodness, this is much more difficult than we expected and the economic consequences are much worse, uh, coming up with a line saying, we always believed that the European Union was a conspiracy against the Mm. reasonable interests of the British public. All we've asked for is full and unfettered access, no membership dues, a complete end to free movement, and a complete end to the justiciability mm. of the European mm-hmm. Court of Justice. Mm. And they've turned us down, thereby proving what we always yeah. believed to be the case. That I think these Brexit ministers will dig themselves into a more anti European position, yes. and I think it's uncertain at this stage how the British public will react. I, I, I think we need to come to an end, but I'm quite happy that we ended on this note on. Really? Sorry, let me finish. I'm quite happy that we ended on the topic of domestic politics in the UK because I do think that here in Berlin and elsewhere this is somewhat under, well, not not really looked at enough and we've already seen how this can influence the negotiations during phase one where, of course, Theresa May was accused of saying one thing in Brussels and then going back to London and saying something completely different. And the Commission wasn't too happy about that. So I think that's something that, that the other European countries certainly need to keep an eye on. Um, so we need to come to an end, but there's one last thing that we always do at the end of our podcast, and this is talk about amazing books that we are reading and are recommending. Um, so I would like to start this bookshelf segment, if I may, with Nick. Nick, do you have any great 
book sh- book recommendations? Uh, no, I don't, because I'm in the last couple of weeks I've been taking refuge from uh, from today's world and, and binging on the C.N. Sampson Shardlake series of Victoria of Elizabethan. What am I talking about? Henry VIII historical <laughs> novels, huh? um, which seems a uh, which is a dark and dangerous world, but seems rather preferable to the one we live in at the moment. Wasn't that the first Brexit? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was, yeah, the nationalisation of the church, yes, it was. <laughs> what about you, Douglas? Do you have a book recommendation uh, for us? Yes, I'd recommend a brand new Scottish author who's published uh, their first uh, non-fiction book called Poverty Safari. His name is Darren McGarvey, and it is an account of deprivation and poverty in contemporary Scotland. And the reason I think it's relevant to our conversation is... In reading that book, it is a powerful reminder of the sense of hopelessness and the yearning for change amongst a whole section of the British electorate that I think in part explains the choice that people made on June the 23rd of 2016. Excellent. A book that relates back to our topic. I like it. Mark, do you have one as well? So mine's not a book. But it is an absolutely fascinating lecture given by the former British ambassador to the EU, permanent representative to the EU, Ivan Rogers, in Oxford um, a few weeks ago, which is uh, published by Prospect magazine, and it's uh, called The Inside Story of How David Cameron Broke Britain to Brexit. And what I think it shows um, is this huge continental-sized gulf which has emerged between the uh, professional uh, Mandarin class and their view of what we should be doing in the world and how we should be handling EU relations and um, the sort of political civil war which has erupted within the Conservative Party above all, but not just within the Conservative Party. And he, it's a very, very interesting uh, lecture which, um, I mean, I, I don't agree with everything in his analysis, but he does also show how the unintended consequences of things that were happening a long way from the British shores, like the the, the Euro crisis, things which you'd have thought uh, Britain was actually insulated from because it wasn't in, even in the, the European Union, and the refugee crisis, which didn't see any refugees showing up on our on our shores, but how that poisoned the, the yet further the the British debate about uh, about Europe. So it's, it's well worth reading. Excellent. So we have great recommendations that actually relate to to our topic. That's quite rare. Um, So this brings our podcast to an end. Um, From Douglas Alexander, Nick Whitney, Mark Leonard and myself, this is Goodbye. The editor of our podcast is Katharina Bötzel-Azinaro and the researcher is Jonathan Hackenbroich. (laughs) 